Thank you. Hello, everyone. Well, you're all so welcoming and wonderful. I just love it. We love it up here, don't we, Lizzie? It's really great. And everybody's so kind. A car even stopped for us the other day. We never stopped for us down south, you know, I tell you. And, they, um, and we were like, the car stopped for us, you know, and we crossed the road and it was really exciting. <laughs> I mean, if that happens at home, it's like, wow, you know. Anyway, I think you know my name. I don't know your name. So after the count of three, if you shout out your name, we can all know each other and I can know your name. So one, two, three. Andrew. Wonderful. I heard Andrew. <laughs> ah, you're the winner. <laughs> right, you're all called Andrew today. Anyway, um, so this man here, you know, said to me yesterday that we were going on this wee cruise you know, and he said, um, on the wee lock. And, uh, and I said to him, I looked this morning and it's gale force winds, you know. Oh, no, no, he said. It'll be fine, it'll be fine. And so we rolled up there and um, I said to the bloke, you know, who's standing outside, I don't know what you call him, a skipper, I suppose. And I said to him, um, is it going to be all right? Is it going to be rough or anything? And he said, uh, oh, we cancelled all this morning's flight, all this morning's sailings. He said it was so rough we couldn't go out. And I looked at him and I went, should I take the seasick pill, which I bought when I, in the airport? And he went, oh, yeah, definitely. So we got inside. We both had one at this point. And then um, what we didn't realise, it takes 30 minutes for it to actually work. And so we were going along. The first bit's fine. And it's not a wee lock. It's massive. It's absolutely massive. And uh, so we're going along. And the whole place, I'm not kidding you, once we got on the proper bit of the lock, it was like this. It was just like this. In, usually you keep your eyes on the horizon, don't you? But the horizon was nowhere to be seen because the horizon kept going down and then up like this. And, oh, my goodness. And by the time the pills worked, we actually nearly docked in the halfway. But coming back, it was smooth and it was fine. The problem was we were so sleepy <laughs> the rest of the day. <laughs> but never mind. It was amazing. We did have a lovely time. We did enjoy it. So I don't know about you, but I love having people to my home. I really love it. And especially since I've had to live on my own, because my husband died four and a half years ago. And, uh, it, and obviously all the lockdown and pandemic and everything else, it's, it's been something that I missed, really. And being an extrovert, I get energised by other people. And at Christmas time, every other year, my brother and I share a Christmas party that we do for the family. So there's usually about 20 of us get together on Boxing Day. And we do the usual thing, you know, we sort of chat together, we laugh, we try and outdo each other with our topping stories, you know, take the mickey out of each other all the time. And then later we have um, games. And um, we really... It's real fun because most of us are mad, you know, a bit crazy. And then we have this party food, a real feast of party food before we play the games. And I love everything about it except for one thing, and it's real my, my dilemma. I love being with the people, but I also love giving them really nice food and getting it all prepared and, and putting it on the table. But the problem is um, some of it is hot food and it'll spoil if you put it... If you put it on too um, out, you know, it'll be cold, obviously, by the time we get, if I do it early. And the other problem with the other food, you know, something like cheese, you don't want to stick it on the table and it goes sweaty and everything else. So I'm out in the kitchen all on my own, and they're all in there, and all I can hear is them laughing, you know, and I want to be part of that, you know. And I, I get what my daughter calls, I have to get the right word. 
I used to call it FIMO, but that's FIMO. That's the thing you put clay in the oven and all that for kids, isn't it? But it's FOMO, isn't it? I have to remember it's FOMO, fear of missing out. And I, I do have that in a way because I don't want to miss out on what with them and being with them. Um, and so, yeah, that's my dilemma. And um, I just like being with the people. And I just want to tell you about, you probably know about it anyway, but this is um, what I've prepared, so this is I'm doing it, mate. So it's Luke 10, 38 to 41. And I'm just going to read it out and then just talk about it, basically. So as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from them. her. So we can read that passage, just like I read it, you know, with no emotion, no feeling, you know, without actually seeing that there's an awful lot of drama going on there. And so I just want to unpack that a little bit. So can you imagine, there's Martha and Mary who live with their brother Lazarus. And Martha's name means mistress of the house. And true to her name, the scripture says, which I just read out, Martha opened up her home to Jesus. Not only to Jesus, but to the disciples too. So thinking about it, I'm not very good at adding up, but to me that makes like 16 people. And who knows who else they might have brought along. You never know, you know, if they often gathered other people, didn't they? But I can really relate to Martha, you know, she get, often gets a lot of bad press when people mention this story. But she's the type, you know, she wants everybody to have a good time. She's out there in the kitchen preparing the foods. She wants to serve them, she wants to feed them. And she's probably in the kitchen, you know, peeling her veggies and stuff and sorting out the meats and she's probably thinking, oh no, they haven't got any drinks. Where's Mary? Why isn't she helping me? I can't do everything. And then she leaves the kitchen to find Mary. And she probably can't believe it that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, you know, just when she needs her. And not only that, she's surrounded by all these dishy men. Imagine it. Suddenly you've got all these men in your house. You're a woman out in the kitchen, you know, you're single. And that probably really riled her. I can imagine it, really. And then she's probably thinking, she hasn't even taken the orders, you know, for the drinks. Who wants a cocktail? You know, who wants a beer? Um, and at that point, I'm sure Martha really wished that she'd ordered a takeaway. <laughs> you know, I'm sure. Full of frustration and anger, you know, she approaches Jesus. And I think this is a bit more like how she spoke to him. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. Have you ever done that? Have you ever chosen to actually do something? It's your idea to do it. And you don't ask anybody to help you, but then you go off to do your thing and you sort of like automatically expect the one that's your, your sister or your, well, somebody you love at least, you know, will come and help you. And I think men, it is Father's Day, and I think you might identify with this a little bit. It's just... Um, sorry to be um, like this, but ladies, because I really am on your side. But we do that, don't we, sometimes? We're like struggling to do something, but we don't actually ask the men folk, you know, if they'd help us. We just expect them to come. You know, I did. I used to do that anyway. Um, well, maybe you're someone who always does that. 
But why didn't Martha, this is my little question, why didn't Martha just go up and whisper in Mary's ear, you know, that, um, could you come and help me, you know? I mean, you wouldn't respond, really, if somebody was being really angry at you for the start, would you, if they wanted help? But what she actually did, she came and she poured out all her anger and resentment onto Jesus. Don't you care? Ouch, you know, that must have been, like, fancy saying that, you know, don't you care? And she just sort of really lashed out at Jesus. But that's often what we do as well. We, we lash out at the person who loves us the most, don't we? Because we, maybe it's because we feel safe doing it there. We feel more safe. And it was as if it was Jesus' fault, you know, that she was in the kitchen. Don't you care? If only she knew what was to come, you know, about what Jesus was going to do later on to do with Lazarus, her brother. And even what Jesus was going to do, you know, suffering on the cross and dying for her, you know. And that showed he cared big time. Don't you care that my sister left me to do the work by myself? Martha just didn't realise, you know, she'd made that choice. It was only her that made that choice. And Jesus could have called on hundreds of angels, you know, just to come and, and prepare food for, you know, thousands of people. And he could have turned any food in that kitchen to anything he wanted to. And then her next line was, tell her to help me. And she expected Jesus to agree with her, you know. But what I love about Martha is she's feisty, isn't she? she she's feisty. She, she actually did it. She just came up to Jesus and, and she sort of like let it all out on him, all her anger and her frustration and, and what, all her feelings, you know. And often we don't do that, do we? We keep it all inside. We keep it all inside. We think we have to be polite with Jesus, you know. But you can see all the crap we've got inside us anyway. You know, you can see what's all our turmoil. You can see what everything that's going on with us. And she doesn't hold back. And I can, I can just imagine her um, charging out of the kitchen, you know, saying, I'm going to tell Jesus, you know, he's going to make her take notice. But although she came out, you know, all guns blazing, Jesus wasn't angry with her. He wasn't angry with her at all. And I think sometimes that's why we don't come to him with stuff, because we think he might be angry with us. And that's, that's not what he's like, you know, it's not what he's like. He's always got his arms, you know, just out to us, ready, waiting for us. And I love it that um, he used her name twice. He said, Martha, Martha. That's, I think, how he said it. And I think he said it in a gentle way, you know, but an endearing way. And he, he, in the Bible, we see him quite a few times mentioning people's names twice. In the Old Testament, people, when God speaks to them, he sometimes says it twice. And I think it, it was like saying, this is, what I'm about to say is very important, and you need to take notice of it. And he said, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. Ah, so it's not just that one thing. It's not just Mary and what Mary's not doing that's bothering um, Martha. She's got other stuff going on, other stuff she hasn't told Jesus about when she saw him, you know, other things she hasn't bought. And that's often what we do, don't we? We, we have all these things, that, and it might be something here, something there, so all completely different things. And then something happens, and that one thing is enough to push you over the edge, you know. That's, that's the thing that you know, goes, you know, and you're in that position. And I think for Martha, it was her final, it was her last draw, really. And maybe there was lots of stuff that needed releasing in Martha, and that was just like the tip of the iceberg, really.
But Jesus never turns away from our anger, you know. We get frightened of it sometimes or we, we don't really like it. I think it depends on how we were brought up, you know. If we were brought up in a very angry household, then it, I should imagine that's quite frightening, you know, that could be quite frightening. And some of us have not been shown a good model of anger, of what to do with it when we feel it. And it's such a huge emotion, it's such a powerful emotion. And there's nothing wrong with anger. There's nothing wrong with it. It's God-given. He gives it to us like a safety valve. And it energizes us. So if we were in danger from somebody else who's going to attack us or do something, you know, it sort of makes us bigger and it makes us bolder. And for some people, they don't like getting rid of their anger if it's about something in the past because it helps them to feel more powerful instead of feeling weak. And we all hate feeling weak. We don't like it. We don't like feeling vulnerable. So Jesus doesn't chastise her, but he said, few things are needed, indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. He showed her clearly he wasn't going to make, he wasn't going to do anything about Mary sitting at his feet. And I wonder what Martha did then. I'd love to know what the next bit was, you know. I wonder what she did. Did you just think, oh, all right, you mean I can sit here too, you know. It gave her a little breathing space and I don't know what she did. I just don't know what she did. But I really hope she sat down at Jesus' feet amongst the men as they were being taught by Jesus. And women weren't usually allowed, you know. The rabbi never came and taught the women, you know. But here was an opportunity, you know, because Jesus never turned away from women, you know, he never did. He never treated women as they were treated in that day. So what do we do with our anger? Do we stuff it down, you know, do we stuff it down until it builds up and then when something happens it just pushes over the, over the edge, you know. My oldest grandson, Ted, he's now 19, um, but when he was in primary school he told me this. At school, he said, he said at school, no, no, he said, Friends tell me, if there's an E in your name, especially your surname, one of your parents is definitely an alien. <laughs> I went, right. And he said, well, I know my dad definitely is an alien. And I went, why's that? And he said, well, when I've done something wrong, he said, my dad goes really, really red. He said, it's almost like a purple colour. He said, and his eyes just pop out of his head. He said, like, they become really big and bulgy. He said, and it's, it just looks so scary. It looks really scary. And I said, Ted, that's not your dad being an alien. I said, that's, that's your dad being angry, you know, because you've done something wrong. And he was like, oh, right. And imagine that you suddenly find out that your dad's not an alien. <laughs> Quite a revelation, really. Anyway, as I said, anger is very, very powerful. Um, when my husband died four and a half years ago, um, I directed my anger at the cancer that killed him. And he was, he only had a sore arm. He looked so healthy. He looked really healthy. He was having physio for his arm. And um, then the doctor 
you have, when you get to a certain age, you have these yearly bloods you have to have done all the time. And he phoned, the doctor phoned him up and said, you need to go and see um, a specialist to have a bone scan. And he had the bone scan, and they found that his body was absolutely riddled with cancers, all in his bones. And the, the arm was very near where a tumour was in his lung, and so that's why his arm was hurting. Um, and when he died, I just, I just hate it. No, Part of grieving is anger, I expect you know that. But I wasn't angry at God, you know, I wasn't angry at the doctors, I wasn't angry at the nurses or anything like that. But the cancer, I just hated. I loathed it, I hated it. And so I put my anger on the cancer and at the top of my voice I would just shout, I hate you cancer, I hate you, I hate you. And then I would tell Jesus, you know, I hate that cancer. I hate what it did to him. I hate watching what it did to him. And I found it quite releasing just doing that, you know, and bringing that anger to Jesus. And sometimes I would shout out in tongues. You know, I'd, I would think of it, of what I was angry about. And then I'd pray in a prayer language that Jesus gave me many years ago. And doing it, it's so good because you know, because Jesus gives you the words, because... I don't understand what I'm saying at all. But he does. He knows what you're saying. So I knew it wouldn't be anything offensive to Jesus, me doing this in tongues. And I'm sure he showed me that many years ago when I was angry about a lot of stuff before when we had tragedies happen in our family. And, um, and I found it so releasing because after a little while, all the energy of the anger just dispersed. And so I just keep doing that. Another thing I did, I cleared out, first of all, all the special equipment we had, which filled up the garage. Um, and I hated, since he was diagnosed, that he became so thin that the clothes he wore I call his cancer clothes. So that was the first thing to go. I actually used to put the energy of the anger into ripping up some of them. And it felt so satisfying, you know. It's so satisfying to, to put something on something like that and then um, either like on a pillow and punch the life out of it, you know. Because that's more healthy. Because we're not doing it against somebody. We're not um, keeping it inside of us to fester and grow. And um, I cleaned out all his cancer clothes, but then I started clearing out all his old clothes because that, for me, it was like sat shouting at me that he was no longer here. And so I hated that as well. They showed me what I couldn't have. And then I had this dream. And in this dream, Ken, my husband, knocked at the door, and I opened the door to him, and he said, where's my clothes? And it was like... Oh no, oh, in the dream it was like, how can I tell him? There's nothing left, there's nothing of his clothes. And so I had to go and talk to my daughter and I said to my oldest daughter, and I said to her, now I know what I'm about to say is really, really crazy and I know that, I know that, but I just need to know the answer of this. Will dad come and knock on the door and say, where are my clothes? And she said, no, no, mum, he definitely won't. I went, that's okay then. I just needed to hear it basically, you know, because when you have a dream, it just can be weird, can't it? It can be just really weird. Um, but if we hold that anger in, if I'd have held that anger in and I hadn't let it out, what it would have done, it would have festered and it would have grown to something else. 
And sometimes we do that against people. You know, we're angry with people or we're angry at situations. And, but if it's with people, it grows to, to resentment and it grows to bitterness. And anger is not a sin. The Bible's, you know, it's, it doesn't say in the Bible anger is a sin. It says, do not um, let your, the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it. Do something about it because God knows it will fester into something else. And the next stage on from anger is hatred. And after hatred is um, revenge. And we do action with revenge often. And then the final thing of that, I mean, it's way up here somewhere, but it's murder. And we don't want anything to do with that. So we need to deal with our anger. And some of us don't even know we've got it. You know, it's been pushed down for so many years, we don't know it's there. And it eats away at us. So we can use our voice to vent our anger to Jesus in a safe place to do it. We can use our body and beat the life out of a pillow. We can whack a ball into a net, you know, we can kick a ball. We can run on the spot. We, we sometimes need to use our bodies, and I just think men find, can find that quite useful, to use their body to get that out of their body. You know, go for a run till you're all hot and sweaty, you know. Um, my youngest daughter, Beth, when she was a little girl, she, with her anger, she used to slam the door so hard. We had these um, old-style wooden doors with latches on. And she used to slam it so hard that a crack, a massive crack, appeared above the door. And one day I said to her, do you know that, see that crack there? I said, when you were little, did you know that you slammed the door so much? I said, you made a crack. She said, yeah, and you know what? She said, I'm not going to be one of those people that come to her house who have to be prayed for and let out all their anger. She said, I did it then. And I went... Good point, good point. You know, I liked it. I really like that. So another time we hear about Martha is in John 11, 1 to 44. So Lazarus, um, obviously Mary and Martha, he's their brother um, and their sisters, but he gets sick. And the sisters send a message to Jesus to say that Lazarus is sick. I'm not going to read out the whole thing because it's really a long passage. And instead of Jesus rushing to their house, he stays two more days where he is. And the Bible tells us that he loves, he loves all of them. He loves all three of them. And he tells the disciples that the sickness will not end in death, but will glorify God. And the disciples get really confused because then Jesus says that Lazarus is asleep. And then he's going to go and wake him up. And then he tells them that Lazarus is dead. I mean, it must have been way, way confusing. They probably had no idea what they were going to find when they arrived. But Jesus arrived in Bethany, where the sisters lived, and he found out Lazarus had already been dead for four days. Now, that must have been so shocking for them that he waited so long. In John 11, verse 20, it says, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, feisty Martha. But Mary stayed at home. Can you imagine how devastated they must have been? You know, not only had their brother been sick and he died, but when they asked Jesus to come, he didn't come. And he was the one that they knew could do something about this when he was sick. I'll tell you, when um, my husband um, was diagnosed, a uh, couple of days afterwards was Sunday, church, and he wanted to tell everybody in the church because he wanted them to pray for him. Um, but he said it, he didn't say it with any sort of feel sorry for me or anything like that. And um, he just told them, you know, his diagnosis, which was it was um, basically if he didn't have treatment nine months later, he would die. 
And in fact, they couldn't find the cancer exactly what it was, because they had to prove that. They could see it all in his body, um, what it was. And so when they gave him what he needed, it didn't work, because it was just too late. It was six months later. But I tell you, as he told everybody about his diagnosis, and he just looked at everyone and he said, but I know where I'm going. He said to them, I know where I'm going. And then I spoke, and I just, just briefly, and I just said, I can't do it because I'm holding the microphone, but I had two hands out. And I said to them, on the one hand, we know and we believe in miracles. We've seen miracles. I've seen so many miracles. seen so many people healed physically and emotionally. So on this hand, I know God can do that. But on the other hand, I also know we ha he has an everlasting life. And so he would be risen to glory, you know? And so it's a win-win, really, you know, because on both hands, we didn't know which one it was going to be. And, but all the time he was ill, he always said to people, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. And when he was actually dying and he was in hospital, the specialist nurse who was at the council hospital, which was about 10 miles away, actually maybe 50 miles away, she happened to be in the hospital that day, which I didn't know. And she came up and she was in the corridor. And she said to me, do you know we've never had a patient like your husband? I said, really? She said, no, he always looked so well. He, he looked nothing like what was going on inside his body for the first six months. And she said, but every time he came, we told him more devastating news. We never, ever gave him good news every time he came. And she said, every time he came, he sat in that office, he nodded, quietly nodded, and then he said, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. And I just thought that was amazing. I find it so interesting that in their grief, Martha rushed out. She rushed out to Jesus. And Mary stayed at home. Because they're different. We're all different, you know. We grieve differently. My daughters grieve differently. You know, they're very different. But I probably grieved similarly to my youngest daughter. And my oldest daughter was a bit more like my husband. And she, avoid, she avoids it. And we didn't even realize um, for a long time. And my daughter, youngest daughter said the other day, do you know what, Mum, do you realize when Dad died that Alex didn't ask us round for Sunday lunch like she used to all the time? And I went, oh, yeah. And she said, you know why? She told me the other day she couldn't bear that Dad wasn't sitting there at the top of the table. And so we, we all, we're all different. Beth and I... We cry. We cry at everything. We cry at adverts. We cry at movies. You know, we we just have to have a box of tissues by us. So we just cried a lot together, you know, and shared stuff together. Whereas I did it in a different way with my other daughter. So we all grieved differently. And I think Martha was displaying a mixture of anguish, anger, and deep grief and sorrow. Martha, the extrovert one, who didn't hide her feelings, went out immediately to meet Jesus. And as soon as she saw him, Martha said. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. You know, you can imagine the way she said it to him because she felt safe to say exactly what she was feeling. Bless Martha, what faith. She knew that Jesus could have healed her brother and stop him from dying. 
And then she went one further. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And not only was she believing, but she was declaring. And it's so important to declare these things. She declared the truth that Jesus was the Son of God and that Father God would answer whatever Jesus asked of him. And nothing was too difficult for him, although the body of Lazarus was already decaying. It was four days. But she knew that Jesus could raise the dead. And Jesus replied, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he said to her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? That was a really crucial question for Martha. Again, she declared the truth. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who's come into the world. And then Martha rushed back to tell Mary, and Jesus stayed where he was outside the village of Bethany. And she said to Mary, the teacher is here, and he's asking for you. And Mary at that moment rushed out, and all the Jews who were comforting her rushed out with her. They thought she was going to the tomb where he was buried. And I just so love what Mary did next. I just so love it. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And that was the place she knew, wasn't it? Mary knew that place, the place where she just fell at his feet. She fell down, like worship. But she also, I believe, fell down in her grief. And I believe she said it in quite a different way. Lord, if you've been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And some commentaries I looked at said that Jesus was violently agitated, as in grief, because he saw all their grief, and he groaned. He actually made noises, you know, because Jesus was identifying with all the people grieving, you know. He was identifying with Martha, and he was identifying with Mary. And um, he's fully human, you know, he came to earth fully human, but also fully divine as well. But he was identifying with them. And he said, where have you laid them, him? And they all replied, come and see, Lord. Then the most profound thing, I think, in the Bible, and it says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Once more, he allowed himself, all those people, to see him vulnerable, you know. God, God himself, you know, weeping. And now Jesus joined with Mary and Martha and the Jews, and he shared their grief, just like he always does. You know, he does it with us. Did you know that when we grieve, Jesus is not only interceding, but he weeps with us? And the Bible says that he's well acquainted with sorrows. And when Jesus came to the cave where Lazarus was, the scripture says, Jesus once more deeply moved. <clears throat> and I looked this up of just in different places about that. And he was angry with death. I believe he was angry with death. <clears throat> and even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still was identifying with the people. And he asked for the stone to be removed. And I love it, the ever-practical Martha, as if God. And then after praying, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And amazingly, Lazarus walked out with his grave clothes on and cloths over his face, and his hands and feet were ripped, wrapped with strips of linen, and the people were instructed to take them off. Can you imagine that sight? 
Can you imagine what that must have looked like? Somebody had been in there for four days in the heat and, and everything, and then coming out stumbling, you wouldn't have been able to see or anything, you know, and, and the sight of that, I mean, I expect people were screaming, it doesn't tell us that, but either they couldn't have felt that they could hardly breathe, you know, and you've ever done that when something is so incredible and you go, ah, ah, and nothing comes out, you know, or else they were screaming or maybe somebody was whistling, you know, I, who knows what people were doing, but it was the most incredible sight. And can you imagine the grief, the intense grief that was going on and, and um, the anger that also is so intense and then suddenly, just like that, and I expect in a second, you know, a few minutes, Martha and Mary couldn't even believe it, suddenly seeing their brother, you know. Well, since the start of the pandemic, we've had to cope with an awful lot of intense feelings, haven't we? I mean, there could be like a whole list of feelings. We could cover probably two A4s with it, paper. But I've observed that people around me, um, the reason I talked about this was because anger and grief, it seems like that has been something that's been quite a high level because the grief can be about all sorts of things, you know the loss of, of life of loved ones. It could be about the loss of our job. It could be the loss of our freedom, a loss of our peace that we used to feel once and we can't feel it anymore. Um, it could be our frustration, you know, it could be hard work, you know, it's just lots of big feelings about how exhausted we feel, you know, and, and how complicated things have become. For some of us, we already had suppressed anger and unexpressed grief and past hurts when we were a child. So I just want to end with a, rather than doing a sad thing like that, is to tell you about something of many, many times over the last four and a half years, Jesus has been healing me, still healing me. Um, with grief, you know, deep grief like that, it's, it just goes on, but it changes hopefully. Um, and you never stop missing and you never stop loving. But... One of the things at a certain time, I think it was probably about six months after Ken died, we'd been married 49 years and I met him when I was 16, went out with him when I was 17, um, uh, got engaged when I was 18, got married when I was 19. And so he's always been there, you know, for me really. So um, the thing that I've I missed amongst many, many other things was his hugs when he hugged me because he didn't just hug me, he held me sometimes because he knew I'd had quite a difficult childhood and stuff and teenage life and all that. And I just think he sort of, he felt he rescued me from all that at my age of when I was 18. So, um, yeah, so I loved being in that place, you know, of being held or hugging him. And I just, I remember just... God looks into your heart anyway, you don't even have to say it to him. But I had this dream, and I really missed that, as I told you. And in that dream, Ken walked in, and he was just as he always was. And I just looked at him in my dream, and I said, I didn't know you could come back. I didn't know that that was allowed, that you could come back. And he said, no, it's okay now, it's okay. And I went, right. And I said, can I hug you? And he said, of course I, you can hug me. And so he put out his arms, and I just stayed in his arms for ages. And it was like the hug in my dream came inside me, and it satisfied that place that felt empty. And, um, and then suddenly the door opened, and Alex came in, my eldest daughter. And um, I said, and she saw me, and I said, um, 
Alex, why don't you ask him for a hug? And she did, and he hugged and held her. And then my other daughter came in, and he did the same for them. And when I woke up, it was wonderful. I could feel this hug inside me. And that hug lasted about six months. And it was just so wonderful. And it helped me over a huge hump of time of knowing and, and feeling that. Because Jesus always comes and he always brings something exactly what we need at this moment in time. And I think he wants to do that for you, whatever way. What I've talked about might not touch you at all. It might not be where you are. It might be that it might churn you up a little bit because it is touching on something. Um, you might not really understand what's going on with you when we ask the Holy Spirit to come in a minute. But I just ask that you would just say yes to him because he would never do anything that hurts you. He always is for you. He's never against you. He's never against me, you know. We're all on a journey, guys. We're all on this journey. And it's a journey of wholeness. And we won't be whole until we get to heaven, completely whole. But we can receive in this life, you know, and in the now. And um, I just want to encourage you to keep coming towards him and, and just with your feelings, with your emotions, you know. He used to say to my husband, thing, if you heard me saying about emotions, he goes, what's an emotion, you know. <laughs> but um, he wasn't, um, he was complete opposite to me in different ways, but he always came to him too. So why don't we just stand?